May 3rd, 
another kind of mind. He wrote, I think that I shall never see like a tree. What? Well, that was not an influence on me either. Hate to admit that. You can see it didn't influence me much. I'll tell you why it didn't influence me. We had this teacher when I was in the Warren G. Harding School named Miss Bundy. She's a kindergarten teacher. And uh, Miss Bundy uh, looked like one of the... Well, you remember when they used to have these vinyl chairs that everybody had? Remember they blow up? Those fat vinyl chairs? A friend of mine had one of those fat vinyl chairs. You know, he was so proud of it. Poor Frank. He bought, he bought you know, a whole complete set. He had a fat vinyl blow-up dining room table. He went the whole vinyl route here back in the 60s. Remember when vinyl was big? They had the vinyl shirts, vinyl jockey shorts, everything vinyl. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You could buy almost anything made out of vinyl. And uh, he got a complete set of furniture made out of vinyl. Had these little uh, valve stems on them. You just blow them up. You know, you had a vinyl bookcase. You blow it up. Of course, he didn't have any books. And uh, it's very discouraging to have a bookcase. So he bought vinyl books that you blow up and they... You stick them in there so people can, you know, think you have books and stuff. The book as a decorative item is what he believes in. So he had all these, you know, these nice vinyl things. And one day, he came rushing in, and it was a hot day. And, uh, he, you know, he was out mowing the lawn or something. The only guy I know who has a lawnmower, a lawnmower, you know, the kind you sit on, that has a back seat. And uh, not only that, yes, he, he beautiful. He's got stereo in it. He's got it air-conditioned. And uh, he's got the whole works. He's got uh, radial tires on it. I mean, you can get very deluxe lawnmowers these days. Oh, yes. So some guys even take the lawnmower with them on their vacation. They just drive out, you know, and come back. And he had, he had a very fancy lawnmower. And he all all hot and bothered because he was out there working with his lawnmower. And he came rushing into the house. And he hollered to his wife, Hey, hey, how about a, come on, give me a drink. Gee whiz, wow. How about a can of that the new locale beer? You know, people who believe in vinyl also generally believe in no-cal beer, no-cal fig newtons. They often eat granola. And, uh, yes, you know that kind. They grow their own herbs at home. That You know that crowd. They were the first in their block to, to buy a Volkswagen years ago, you know. And uh, you know the crowd. And uh, they, they actually taught their children to swear. You know, that's that's how that's a true liberal guy that, uh, you know, sits down, kid, now look, you can't talk yet, so the first word you got to learn is, and he teaches them this word, because you're going to see it on the wall, so I want you to be, instead of just being passive about it, be positive about decadence. Oh, yes, the kid was only 19 months old when he had his first fix, and, uh, you know, he wanted him to know what life is about. By the time he was 22 months old, he was a heavy drinker and was going to AA. And, uh, you know, it's a liberal family. So, nevertheless, uh, he comes rushing in after mowing the lawn. And, uh, you know, he had all this beautiful vinyl furniture. He comes rushing in, and uh, he, his wife comes in and gives him this uh, no-cal beer, and he squats down happily on his on his, uh, his vinyl divan. And he squats down on it, and that thing blew for hell and high water. It just blew him up against the ceiling, see, because he had this screwdriver sticking out of his back pocket. And he punctured his vinyl divan, and that thing let go with a blast that could be heard for miles around. The emergency fire department arrived. 
you know, and there was poor Frank limping around the yard. You know, he got a sprained ankle, bumped his nose up against the ceiling when he hit it. It was terrible. Since that time, of course, things have changed there, and, uh, you know, you, you, you just know, uh, <laughs> you know that, uh, that uh, some people do and some don't. And uh, for those who do, well, all I can say to your friend is get at it. Do it well. Do it fully. I mean, if you're going to be decadent, be decadent. Anything I hate, it's half-baked decadence. I mean, I like to see the real thing. You know, I'd like to see, you know, laying on the floor there and people are squirting booze in your mouth out of lady slippers, you know, that kind of stuff. That's real decadence. Oh, that must be exciting. But uh, <laughs> nevertheless, uh, as an observer on the scene, I can only say that that I have always admired people who can honestly say that they were influenced by Dostoevsky or they were influenced by the Greek tragedians. I, I, I honestly, as a writer, can't say it. I'll tell you, I, 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 you notice I'm shilly-shallying here. Now, the reason I'm shilly-shallying is that I approach with some trepidation the admission of what I really was influenced by. Now, there are people who have written to me and said it's obvious from your style of writing at a very early age you were influenced by the Montgomery Ward summer catalog. That's not true. I was not in a Montgomery Ward family. I was not in a Sears Roebuck family. I was in a I was in a Goldblatt family. You don't know about Goldblatt's. Well, Goldblatt's was the neighborhood Macy, right? So uh, you know, I didn't know from Sears. I didn't know from uh, Monkey Wards. Although kids always referred to it as Monkey Wards, right? Well, I mean, kids tend to do that. Now, for example, I know every kid in Clifton refers to a certain town in uh, Jersey as Raspberry Park. They do? That's a fact. Uh, the same crowd in Clifton refers to another town in Jersey, not too far from, as Garbage Field. Right. You see, this is the way of, you know, kids. Uh, uh, you, know, <laughs> you know that they get to the truth. They, they really lay it right out. Not knowing they have said the truth. Maybe that's why they do it. So, uh, Nevertheless, I can honestly say that I was never influenced by Dostoevsky. I was never influenced by Hemingway. Now, I read all those people. <laughs> of course. Uh, I don't know. I, I, uh, listen, I, I defer to no Mailer or Kurt Vonnegut in lying about my past. I will, I will, you know, no way. But I will tell you what influenced me more than most other things. Now, when you were a kid... What did you read? I mean, seriously, really, I'm not talking about the stuff where the kids handed around those little blue books with the, you know, in the back there, back of the swings, Maggie and Jigs and Tilly the Toiler and all those great blue books. Did you ever see those? Of course you did. The little blue books. Yeah, Maggie and Jigs, Mutton Jeff, Tilly the Toiler, unbelievable adventures. The stuff you never saw in the real comic strips. It was in those little blue books. Now, uh, you might have been influenced by that. I suspect, uh, yes, I suspect maybe Philip Roth was influenced by those. I've read some of his stuff. Now, uh, uh, <laughs> wait a minute. That's a real literary influence, after all. <laughs> and uh, as, a, as a kid, uh, I just have to ask you, you know, openly. I mean, let's, let's face it, it is spring. And uh, we all have a nest of robins in our hair. No, I think that I... Well, Miss Bundy, you see, 
who looked a little bit like one of these vinyl settees with a sash on. The way Miss Bundy looked. She she looked inflated. You know, there's certain people... Just, not fat, just billowy. You know you know what I mean? But she was fat, but she was billowy. You know, you don't think of her. She was beyond fat. She was billowy. And uh, Miss uh, Bundy, every spring... Uh, uh, we would have this uh, auditorium session at the Warren G. Harding School. We would celebrate Arbor Day. Now, they don't celebrate Arbor Day much in New York. Well, because they don't know what a tree is, you know. They, they, you don't celebrate Arbor Day in a city with very few trees. So Arbor Day was a big thing, see, and, and uh, being in the kindergarten at the time, we all went out on Arbor Day, and we planted a tree. The class would plant a tree. And uh, that was a big moment. We we planted this tree, and Miss Bundy would stand over us, a very motherly lady, and she'd say, boys and girls, this tree will grow here, and many years from now, when you're a grown-up person, you can come by, and uh, you'll see the tree that our little class planted on this Arbor Day. And you are planting a tree for posterity. Well... Uh, I have never really gone back to that vacant lot to see if that tree is there, because I'm afraid to do it. I mean, I know what's there. There's an Esso station there. and uh, But nevertheless, Miss Bundy dreamed these dreams, and uh, we went back into the kindergarten. I hated kindergarten. I never talk about kindergarten. You know, so I've, I've blocked that out of my mind, because, you know, I had been led to believe before I went to kindergarten that school consisted of people sitting around in desks, you know, whenever you see a picture of kids in school, they have desks, don't they? Of course, before I went to school, I assumed, you know, the idea of having a desk was an exciting thing. Do you still get excited over having your own desk to sit at, pull the drawers out and close them? And, uh, yes, a desk is a very exciting thing because it means that you have official business in this world. You have a mission to accomplish. You don't sit at a desk and just uh, fool around. Theoretically, <laughs> this building's full of them. But uh, you know, you're not supposed to do that. The desk it has meaning. And uh, so, as a little kid, that before I even went to school, I had seen pictures of uh, of the kids sitting at desks in school, and uh, they had books and and uh, you know, and uh, there was a blackboard and all that. And it was very exciting to me the idea. Well, I turned up at the kindergarten. It turns out they didn't have desks at kindergarten. They all squatted on the floor. Yes, and they had sandboxes, sandboxes. I mean, I stopped messing around in a sandbox at the age of four weeks. And we were supposed to... And blocks! I never could buy the block scene. I I, I, I can remember at the first time when I was a little kid, somebody gave me a set of blocks. The only thing I could think to do with them was throw them at them. And I did, and that's where I developed that beautiful sidearm motion I've got. You know, I have a nice slider, especially with a block. And then after about a couple of weeks of messing around with the blocks, no, dull, there's nothing duller than a block. Uh, I, I discovered that you could spell words out with them. And I did. And then after that, of course, the blocks were verboten. No blocks in this house. And especially not when the other kids are around. Where did you learn that? You know, that kind of stuff. So, uh... I don't know why I'm burdening you with this, except that this letter from the University of Virginia really has set me off what were your early influences. So uh, I could say that one of my early influences was Flick. Now, I can't write that down in their official 
analysis of uh, an American writer's, you know, biography that they're putting together. Shepard maintains that among his earliest influences was a tall, thin kid named Flick, who had a tremendous collection of stories that began with, don't tell anybody where you heard this, but did you hear the one about? Well, uh, <laughs> he had a collection of stories, incredible. And, at, you know, at a very influenceable age, that kind of stuff, really. Yeah, he kept telling stories about something. He used a word that I always thought had to do with hockey. Uh, I later learned that uh, many hockey players do use that word at times when, it, you know, things are getting rough around the blue line. But if they do, the whistle blows, and that's at least five minutes. Now, you know, when you, when you get back to your early influences, how can I tell them that one of my earliest literary influences was a, was a commercial? Uh, one of the very first things I actually learned as a kid, I learned the song that goes like this. Pepsi-Cola hits the spot, 12 full ounces, that's a lot. Twice as much for a nickel, too. Pepsi-Cola is the drink for you. Nickel, 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 Okay. That was a profound influence on me. In other words, I was influenced by the slob world around me far more than Dostoevsky ever influenced me. I was influenced by another one. You want to hear another one of my early commercials? I learned this at the age of about seven. Uh, I wonder if you ever heard this one. Just the other day I heard a lady say, Give me wishing bell wine, because mission bell's fine. Just the other day I heard a lady say, Give me mission bell wine, because mission bell is fine. Drink it red or white, drink it day or night. Mission bell is the wine for you, and the price is right. The price is right. Okay. How can I put that in my biography? Would anyone believe it? All right. Do you want to hear another one? All right. Tasty yeast is handy for your appetite. Tasty yeast is dandy. <laughs> All right, I remember that one. Okay, now, now to be honest with you, though, I did have a strong literary influence. That, now, I'm telling you this as a researcher, right? You're writing, I just got a letter from the University of Virginia, Laurie, and the letter said, would you please tell us some of your early literary influences? Now, I've always envied writers like Norman Mailer and Philip Roth who always come up with goodies like, uh, well, uh, a War and Peace. Uh, I was influenced heavily by uh, some of the early uh, Russian short story writers, Pushkin in particular. What a lot of bunk. I have never, uh, at the age of 10, I don't know any kid that sits around reading, reading Pushkin. And if he does, I sure don't want to know that kid. That kid is a sad, bad kid who probably has very bad eyes, and has a tendency to have uh, terribly, uh, terribly decayed teeth that you don't, you know, you got to watch that kid. And so as a, as a child, what influenced me? What influenced you, if you honestly had to say it? Well, number one influence, I, uh, I was among the first in my neighborhood to know the tune and the words to every commercial that was heard on the radio. Just the other day, I heard a lady say, Give me Mission Bell wine, because Mission Bell's fine. Now, that's a good tune. You, once you get that in your head, you can't get it out of your head. I don't even know whether, whether they make any wine like that. Do they make a wine called Mission Bell? 
<laughs> but they did then, that it was in the commercial there. All right. Uh, now, I, I'll tell you another commercial that was a tremendous, uh, had a tremendous impact on me. <clears throat> it was the commercial one. <clears throat> all set now. <clears throat> okay. Bromo Seltzer, Bromo Seltzer, Bromo Seltzer. I was tremendous at, inf- at, at, at imitating that. I would stand around in the Warren G. Harding school grounds and go, Bromo Seltzer, Bromo Seltzer. And it, it was one of my little party jokes that was always good for a, a laugh. I can't write that down. And now I'm going to be honest with you. At the age of seven or eight or nine, and I get this terrible urge right now at this time of year. Again, I must say, I have to add an addenda here or a footnote. I am not sure. I have never known a girl who had this same hang-up. Now, there may be some, but I never knew them. At the age of seven or eight, maybe, no, a little or later than that, about ten. Now, I believe when you're ten, you are truly at an impressionable age. When you're very small, the number of impressions that you can get from outside influences is very small. I mean, you know, your Aunt Clara, you know, the pablum, uh, people saying, now, will you stop doing that on the floor? You know, that kind of stuff. So that influence is, is really just minimal. It is later when you're 10 and you look around and you see other people and you begin to have this fantastic admiration for other people. And uh, then you begin to be influenced. Now, at the age of 10, I formed a tremendous involvement. I could hardly wait every month for this magazine to come out. In fact, I saved my money. So one of the first things I can remember saving my money for. I saved my money every month so that I could buy a copy of this magazine that came out every month. And I want to tell you, I not only read this magazine, I memorized it. I read the ads, I read the front, I read the back, I read, I even read the little print up in the front, you know, that says our main offices, the circulation offices. I love this magazine so much that I read it right down to the last word. Well, I was not alone. The reason I got hung on this is that there were a couple of other kids in the neighborhood who were older, and they were, you know, they were the kids that I was really admiring of. When you're 10, a kid of 12 has tremendous class. And there was this, yeah, there was this kid of 12 named Stanley who, you know, he was so far above reading the kind of junk that, you know, the, the rest of us read, like the Oz books and that kind of stuff. This guy read this magazine, and I, I, I began to read it, and at that point it sucked me in. What was the magazine? Okay. You ready for it? Field and Stream. (laughs) Now, have you ever heard a girl that's hung on reading Field and Stream? Now, I'm not being a chauvinist male pig fink. I'm merely telling you I never heard of a girl that was hung on Field and Stream. If there was such, I would be delighted to hear from her. I mean, and if there was such, I would be loath to not necessarily believe her letter. She would write this long letter, but I'm not, I don't know, you know. After the fact, you may have been involved in it. 
But I'm talking about really, man. And as a kid, I, I, I loved this magazine so fantastically because I guess it was be, it, it described the world so unbelievably alien to the world that I lived in that it seemed exquisitely desirable. I think one of the reasons certain people are hung on, for example, science fiction, is that it's an escape from their own little drab lives. They like to believe that in the future, life is going to be unbelievably exciting for everyone. There's no squabs in the world of, of uh, fantasy and science fiction. You know, everybody lives in the future. And, of course, the future is so exciting. And uh, everything, you know, machines do everything, and electronics and computers do it all. And uh, you're just sort of carried along on this great wave of technology. You yourself, of course, uh, don't have to do anything about it. It does it to you. Whereas in our world, too much of it is dependent on you. And that ain't good when you got no talent. So, <laughs> so fantasy fiction sucks guys in like that. Well, I was sucked into field and stream. I remember, I can actually remember openings of stories to this day. A story that, well, all right, you want to hear a typical opening? story opened up like this. Little did I realize when I received that phone call from Joe Breen, an old fishing friend of mine, who invited me to fly up with a friend of his in, our, in his float plane to this remote lake in Maine. What an unbelievable experience lay ahead. Oh, my God. I mean, flying up to a, to a, a, a bass lake, it's so far in the fastnesses of Maine. I mean, huh. And, and then, of course, the next paragraph, it was just dusk as we flew over the lake for the first time, was lying like a jewel amid the untracked wilderness below us. I knew immediately why Joe told me that this lake was, uh, only reached by plane. And so we circled twice, and our pilot made a superb landing on the mirror glass-like water, and moments later, we were drifting into the hidden cove, ready for two weeks of fantastic fishing. Wow. I mean, you know, you, you, you hear about this. Now, if you're living amid four million square miles of refineries, are you aware that the entire northern half of Indiana is coated thickly? Encrusted, in fact, like the bottom of a Humphrey Bogart-type uh, tramp steamer is encrusted with barnacles. That the entire northern half of Indiana is encrusted with refineries. Did you know that? You didn't? Well, you're getting a little uh, lesson here in, uh, in contemporary geography. As a matter of fact, Standard Oil is an Indiana company, you know. Standard Oil of Indiana, you've heard that? Well, where the hell do you think Standard Oil of Indiana is in? Utah? Well, it's all over northern Indiana. And as far as the eye can see, you see these, uh, these silver tanks. And you smell this great drifting effluvia of, uh, of kerosene and uh, low-grade insecticides. You know, they make insecticides out of petroleum. How would you like to live within a half mile of the biggest insecticide plant in the Western world? 
And they would test it every couple of days by shooting it up in the air and seeing how many things fall down. Well, <laughs> I mean, that was, that was the seed. So uh, between, and between the refineries, of course, would be dotted picturesque steel mills. And what glued all of it together? Some of the most colorful and some of the most unforgettable used car lots and junkyards ever created by man. And so if any of you think that I come from, from a simple uh, country barefoot boy with cheek of tan background, well, let's put it this way. I'll, I'll have to put it this way. Northern Indiana, where I grew up, uh, makes, uh, well, it, it makes Hoboken look like Palm Beach. Okay? You got it? And I'm not putting Hoboken down. <laughs> you should have seen that. That uh, Oh, yes. Uh, you know that, that it wasn't until well into my uh, 14th or 15th year that, uh, that they discovered in Whiting, Indiana, that there was a thing called spring. It caused a lot of excitement in the local newspapers. It was one of those aberrant years, you know, when the sun came out. It caused great excitement among the natives, who were very superstitious, who suddenly felt that the great refinery in the sky was blowing up. They hadn't seen the sun for maybe 40, 50, maybe 100 generations. So getting field and stream was like getting a total fix of fantasy. It was an LSD of an incredible pot uh, potential power. And so when you'd read these... these uh, another piece would always open up like this. Like this. Uh, here, typical piece. The blinding sun danced on the waters of the Gulf as we slowly pulled our way through the crystal clear, green, emerald sea. It was only three or four feet deep, and the coral stood out like jewels on the sandy bottom as we stalked the wily bonefish and the outflowing islands of the Keys. Good God! I mean, you read that kind of stuff, and you look out of the window, and you see Standard Oil blowing some more in your direction. You, uh, you, you're not thinking of fish, friends. You're thinking of a world that has no end. <laughs> I mean, fantastic. Then there was another one that always would say, uh, there, there, there was the, the fulfilled lifelong dream story, which always appeared, and still does appear, in uh, Field and Stream magazines of that type. It says, for years, I had had a secret ambition of fishing for the rare golden trout in the Peruvian Andes. At long last, that dream was about to come true as our jet dropped its wheels and we landed at the airport at Lima. And two weeks later, trekking through the jungles, Fred and I, oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it, so uh, now how can you say that you were influenced by field and stream? That, that you know, that's the truth. Uh, their ads, oh, their ads were something out of this world. I mean, their ads always showed, they, they were complete with pictures. You see, the ads, just like in uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, women's magazines, for, for example, yes, I know there, a lot of women's magazines, for example, continually offer women eternal youth. Oh, yes, they do. I mean, you're looking puzzled, Tony. You haven't looked carefully at the magazines. If you buy... Uh, the latest Revson product, or if you buy the latest uh, 
uh, <laughs> Helena Rubinstein thing, you know, that the, the over 40 look is gone forever in Cosmo. See, they're, they're prom it's like She. Did you ever read a book called She by H. Ryder Haggard, which promises eternal life? Well, you know what happened to that bimbo at the end, don't you? Right. Okay. <laughs> it was bad news. However, <laughs> the, 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 this is the, what, what, what the Field and Stream type magazine offers you is, is just total, uncontrollable success in the field. And so there's always a picture of a guy. It says uh, Mr. C.G. Smedley of Hattiesburg, Mississippi, after only three casts with the new darting daredevil whirler with the Hawaiian skirt loop, shown with this uh, collection of walleyes, not one of which weighed under 35 pounds. And it shows him standing there holding these gigantic, unbelievable fish. I mean, world record beaters just from using this plug. And it was the plug. It, 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 the implication is he didn't go to the right place. It was the plug that did it. So that means if you take the new uh, river runt uh, with, the, uh, with, the, with the golden perch uh, special vinyl scale finish on it, with the whirling propeller and the semi-elliptical diving vane on it, down to Cedar Lake, and you cast this son of a gun in a couple of times, you better stand back because it's dangerous when those 200-pound bass come charging out of the lake at you. And so the dreams of, of uh, eternal uh, success, the dreams of eternal youth, and, and right now, I'm sure, that uh, 30 years from now, some girl is going to be asked, what formed your writing style? What was your great influence? And she'll have to say, well, it was the, it was the Charles Revson ads. It was the dream of eternal youth. The over 40 look is gone forever. And so you're looking and listening to a, uh, a victim of field and stream. See, I figured that just over the next hill, or just around the next turn lies the ultimate bath lake. The ultimate bath lake. The one that's been described so many times in the magazines that began with my Indian guide and I little realized what a can of peas we were opening as I cast my bass arena into this lost lake in Quebec when suddenly this giant bass roared out of the water broke my paddle in two and chased me 300 yards into the woods. My God. Yes, the over 40 look is gone forever. Bring it up there, players. Let them simmer in their own juice. That's called psychic marination. I mean, to marinate? Marination? He marinated? I mean, I think one day they're going to make marination among consenting adults legal. Bring it up there. Uh, 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 uh